0: The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Exodus chapter 23. You'll find that on page 64 in your Pew Bible. Exodus chapter 23, beginning at verse 10, reading through to the end of verse 19 and as you can see from the sermon title there's really three distinct but they work together distinct subject matters there's laws on sabbaths laws on festivals and laws on sacrifices so exodus Exodus 23 and verse 10 this is the word of god For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest." And the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread as I commanded you. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year you shall, shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, speak to us now. We are in the most desperate need for you to work in us and please we pray speak to us that we might hear of christ and we might hear the call to holiness that you give us now in this text be pleased to bless us we pray in jesus name amen please be seated Well, I'll remind you we are in the Book of the Covenant, uh, which terminates in Exodus 24. This is the making of the Old Covenant. And here in the text before us, really in these three uh, sections, we're learning how the covenant God, the Lord himself, should be remembered, should be enjoyed, and how he should be worshipped. We've got laws based on the Sabbath principle reminding the people that they are to find their rest in God alone. We've got laws about the festivals, the feasts of Israel, reminding the people that their provision and their dependence is on God alone. And we've got laws on sacrifices here at the end, reminding the people of how they should approach God in worship. In short, you put all these things together and... The purpose of these laws here is to remind the people and to remind us of the shape of redemptive life in covenant with God. There's a shape to redemptive life before God. God, as the great Lord and Savior of his people, is providing his people with a repeated rhythm of spiritual life before him. And in that rhythm, they find spiritual and material flourishing and blessing. And so we're going to derive those principles tonight to see how they, uh, they, they affect us and apply to us, of course, through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. How we are to orient our lives through this passage, how we are to orient our lives with that repeated weekly rhythm of worship of the true and living God. As I mentioned earlier, there's three distinct sections, all of which work together to give us this rhythm of life, these how we are to enjoy God and bring glory to his name. The first section is verses 10 to 13, where we see laws on Sabbaths, plural Sabbaths, laws on Sabbaths. Then in verses 14 to 17, we see laws on festivals, And then finally, in verses 18 and 19, laws on sacrifices. So first of all, laws on Sabbaths. You'll notice I've made that a plural there as we see it in the New Covenant in Colossians. Sabbaths, because there was more than one Sabbath in ancient Israel. And we've got at least two of them in the text before us. All the Sabbaths of the Old Covenant focus upon a central Sabbath principle. There's various outworkings of it, but there is a Sabbath principle. In verses 10 and 11, for example, we see a Sabbath for the land, an agricultural Sabbath. We see in verse 12 a a Sabbath for the work week every seven days. There's also other Sabbaths in the Old Covenant associated with, with feasts. In other words, we need to understand the Sabbath principle, and before we seek how to apply that to any given circumstance, it's helpful first for us to delineate what is that Sabbath principle. The Sabbath was central to the life Of the Old Covenant people. So much so that in the book of Exodus alone, we see the Sabbath law reiterated on four occasions. That's not to mention the rest of the Pentateuch. Just in from Exodus 20 to the end of the book, there are four occasions where the Sabbath law is reiterated. We've seen it in chapter 20 with the giving of the law itself. Now we've got it here in chapter 23. It's there again in chapter 31 and again in chapter 35. Not to mention the rest of the law in Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. Four occasions the Lord gives Sabbath law. Why? Because it was important to him and important to his people. The Sabbath, we're told elsewhere, is a sign of... Of God's covenant with his people. Not quite in the same way that circumcision was, but still a sign of his covenant. Think of this circumcision was a particularly male oriented sign, it had special reference to males, but the Sabbath as a sign had reference to all of God's covenant people, regardless of gender, regardless of social standing. The Sabbath was a sign of God's covenant for all his people. And the Sabbath was a sign that God had made his people and that God had saved his people and that God had provided rest for his people in which they were to rest. We're told in Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy 5, the two main givings of the law of God. In Exodus 20, to the Sabbath law the reason for observing it is creation. God rested, therefore you shall also rest. But in Deuteronomy chapter 5, where the law is repeated, a different motivation is given to observing the Sabbath law. That motivation is redemption. God delivered you from Egypt, therefore keep the Sabbath law. To put it another way, The Sabbath is intimately connected with the idea of rest that God provides for his people. Rest. Now, take care when you define rest. You can't define it as you want to because God's quite clear in Scripture. The Sabbath is patterned after his rest on the seventh day. And when God rested on the seventh day, he didn't just put his feet up and take a snooze. No, he did his work of creation in six days. And on the seventh day, he continued a different kind of work, the work of sustaining his creation. He ceased from one kind of labor, but continued in another kind of labor. Our rest of the Sabbath is defined after God's resting on the Sabbath. The Sabbath principle then for the Israelites... And also for us, has everything to do with God as creator and God as redeemer and us finding our rest in him. So much so was this Sabbath principle important to God that he even applied it to the land. Verse 10. For six years you shall sow your land and gather its yield, but the seventh year... You shall let it rest and lie fallow. God made a Sabbath for the land, an agricultural Sabbath. There was no way the children of Israel could get away from this Sabbath principle. Six years of farming the land, one year of letting it rest. A Sabbath year for the land. Why were they to have that Sabbath year? We're told, let it lie fallow. It was not to be ploughed. It was not to be sown. The land was enabled to rest from its labours. It's rejuvenating itself. But the second reason, we're told, is that whatever is produced in the fields in that year... And if you know anything about garden, you'll know that the ground naturally produces. After it's been sown, it will reproduce what has been sown. There's a natural sowing. Whatever food was produced in their fields that year was to be left to the poor. The other six years, the poor were cared for. How? By the edges of their fields remaining unharvested that the poor might come and collect. But the Sabbath year was exclusively for the poor the same was true for their vineyards and their olive orchards whatever was produced the poor of israel could come in and take and eat and not just the poor a sabbath year for the poor yes but a sabbath year for the beasts of the field we read that there in verse 11 and what they leave the poor leave the beasts of the field may eat. Do you see how far this Sabbath principle is extending in the eyes of God? Not just to the owner of the field, but those who might benefit from the field in its fallow year, and the wild beasts. God has view to his creation benefiting from the Sabbath. And, and as an, uh, an incentive to the Israelites, to to obey this command of, of leaving the ground fallow, God said he would bless them when they did such. Leviticus 25, verse 19, The land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell in it securely. And if you say, What shall we eat in the seventh year, if we may not sow or gather our crop? God says this, I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year, so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. Not one extra year, the seventh year, for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop. When you shall eat the old until the ninth year when its crop arrives. Isn't this amazing? God says, test me on this Sabbath principle and think what greater test it is. What are we going to eat for a year? What are we going to eat for a whole year if we can't farm our fields in the seventh year? God says, test me, and I'll pour out blessing upon you. I will provide in the Sabbath year. Test me, he says, and I'll open the heavens and bless you richly. But not just a Sabbath for the land, a Sabbath also for the people in the work week. Verse 12. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. It's a very simple, a restatement of the fourth commandment. But there's purpose added to this commandment, this statement. Yes, six days you shall work, but on the seventh you shall rest. That means don't do your ordinary work. That, did you notice this, the purpose statement? That your ox and your donkey may have rest, animals, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Sabbath rest, Sabbath refreshment. We can see again that even in this fourth commandment for our working week, the Lord has view not just to ourselves, but to those over whom we have responsibility and relations to. Even their animals were to find refreshment. The alien that dwelt in their midst, the servant woman and his, his son, they were to find Sabbath rest. Friends, note the elements of Sabbath. Stop your work. Stop your work. Unless, of course, as as our Lord exegetes, you're engaged in works of necessity and mercy, stop your work. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Arrest, don't do your work. But in that no working principle, what great concern God tells his people they ought to have for others. Even their animals they're to have concern for. And if their animals are to find rest, then surely the people with whom they have dealings are also to find rest. How much greater are the people than the animals? Refreshment and rest for those in the household. And then we've got this unusual statement in verse 13, which doesn't seem to fit in anywhere, but it fits in with the Sabbath law pay attention to all that i have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods nor let them be heard upon your lips they were to be devoted to the sabbath everyone was to stop their work and they were to engage in worship and they were to ensure on the holy day of god that the gods of the nations round about them found no place in their heart in their minds or upon their lips The Sabbath, they were to be devoted to the Lord their God. Their animals were to be devoted to the Lord their God. The servants in their household, the alien within their gates, devoted to the Lord their God. And if you trace it out through the Old Testament, you will see a strong connection between observing the Sabbath in this fashion and fidelity to God. And when they ignored the Sabbath, or when they, when they drifted from God, God constantly charges them with what? Unfaithfulness to his day. You, you read the prophets. That's one of the charges God consistently bears at them. You have been unfaithful to my day. And that's what ended. They ended up in exile as a result. Friends, there's a number of applications here. If the Sabbath is so important to God, it ought to be important to us, very important to us. How should we do that? We ought to take seriously the call to cease our labors and rest, and to cease our labors given works of necessity and mercy, but to cease our labors and rest according to God's prescription. Even the land had a Sabbath year, and this Sabbath is reflected in care for others, not just worship, of course, but there is through there that Sabbath principle of view to others with whom we have dealings. Two matters spring to mind when I think of this. It's often been said that the restaurants which were once closed on the Lord's Day would again be closed if Christians started observing the Sabbath. How can we claim this kind of care for others if we'll say, well, we won't work, but we're happy to make you work for us? It runs contrary, wholly contrary to the Sabbath principle. Are we prepared to say, well, we're not going to work, but it's fine for you to work? No, the Sabbath is a principle for all men. We ought to think more highly of them than making them labor on our behalf, again, unless we're talking about works of necessity and mercy. But if we are to care for others, what better way on the Lord's Day than by showing hospitality to each other? Show that care to each other. Provide Uh, enjoy each other what better way to serve and observe the lord's day the bottom line is this friends we're to set aside our work if you're a student or a child you set aside your homework don't do your work on the lord's day it's very it's very clear if you can exegete the text in any other way come and tell me and i'll preach a different sermon next week it's very clear don't do your ordinary work on this day give yourself to the service of god And the service of each other. And in doing so, by definition, you are then resting in God. You're saying, Lord, this is the way you have prescribed things to be for me. I will take you at your word. I will believe you to be faithful. I will do what you have commanded and let you open the heavens and rain down blessing upon us. God has made us to rest in him. God has saved us to rest in him. And friends, there's a great warning in this. If we have a low view of the Sabbath, we hurt ourselves immeasurably. We hurt our families immeasurably. We hurt society immeasurably. And we damage the church immeasurably. How much better it would be to enjoy the blessings of the Sabbath than to profane it. The Lord gives us a one in seven rhythm of Sabbath, rest, and worship. And yet He also provided another rhythm, an annual rhythm, in the feasts and the festivals. More times of rejoicing, more times of remembrance. Verse 14, we see the laws on festivals. And we open that section with these words. Three times in the year, you shall keep a feast to me. Here we have, friends, divinely ordained feasts and festivals. Not to be confused with some of the man-made feasts and festivals that would later um, creep into Israelite life. Divinely ordained feasts and festivals whereby the people of god were to enjoy god and remember his protection his care why his salvation of them another rhythm three times throughout the year they were to remember the goodness of god you know the canaanites had many festivals they were debauched events we know that appalling events sexual immorality, drunkenness, crying out to their their gods of fertility, the Baals and so on. Here the holy and living God says, three times you shall celebrate festivals before me. What are those festivals? First of all, there's the feast of unleavened bread there in verse 15. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread as I commanded you, You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. We see a lot there. Remember the Feast of Unleavened Bread associated with Passover, uh, the the one butted right up against the next. Passover starts and finishes, then there's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, And in those feasts, they're remembering the time when God brought them out of the land of Egypt, where, where God separated them as they were to separate themselves from all pollution, symbolized by leaven, removing it from their homes, God would separate them from the pollution of Egypt by his great and mighty outstretched hand. It wasn't so much an agricultural festival, but a salvation festival, a redemptive festival. They were to think and they were to worship and to sacrifice to God because he had delivered them from the bondage to the Egyptians, and he made them a new nation. If they observed this feast as they were told to, as I commanded you, it would have been impossible for them not to remember the goodness of God. Impossible not for them not to remember the mercy and the great power with which God delivered his people. Thus the command we read, none shall appear before me empty-handed. In a sense, if they understood what they were doing, no one would want to have appeared before God empty-handed. To appear before God at this festival, remembering his great work of salvation, the greatest work of salvation in the whole of the old covenant era, why would they want to have appeared empty-handed? But just in case they needed reminding, God says, none shall appear before me empty-handed. They were to bring sacrifices and devotion and love and worship. Then there's the feast in verse 16 of harvest, also known as the feast of weeks. In the new covenant, it gets known as the feast of Pentecost. Pentecost. Fifty days after the beginning of the Passover marked the first harvest in the year, the harvest of wheat. It's a harvest then, a feast recognizing God's blessing of provision upon his people. And in response to God's goodness in blessing them with wheat, they were to return the first fruits, the best the best of their goodness, the best of their harvest, they were to give unto God. They were to sacrificially give the firstfruits of harvest unto the Lord. Then again, verse 16, another feast they're called to attend, the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, also known as the feast of tabernacles or feast of booths. The people lived in booths, man-made booths out of uh, tree structures and tree branches, reminding them that their fathers wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and had no home. And yet that coincided also with the final harvest of the year. It was a cause for them to reflect on God's providential care for them throughout their lives. In other words, friends... When Israel lived and worshipped according to the manner prescribed for them here broadly in this text, truly they glorified and enjoyed God. Truly they glorified and enjoyed God. Maybe this is an inaccurate observation on my part. I think in the Reformed world we do better at the glorifying bit than we do the enjoying bit. It's just a thought, you can disagree with me. It seems to me that's the case. We so focus upon getting the details of glorifying God right, and we must do that, that we lose sight of the actual enjoyment and fellowship and communion and the love of God. Perhaps we have this distant view of God as, as, yes, he's a father, but the enjoyment of God has a picture of us, God with us, that we come to sit at our father's feet. Israel would sit at their father's feet and enjoy him through these festivals. Friends, I want to bring before you again the concept of communion with God, enjoying him. Fellowship with him. We enjoy fellowship in many ways in this life. Husbands with wives, wives with husbands. Parents with children, children with parents. I hope you enjoy the fellowship of this place. All those things should inform our fellowship and communion with God. There is a real relationship to be had with a real father in heaven for the Christian. It's enjoyable. It's full. It's blessed. Even his chastening hand in our lives is a product of his love for us, Proverbs 3. God, you see, has given us our own weekly rhythm. Our own weekly rhythm of redemption is today, the whole day, morning worship, evening worship, a rhythm of redemption. The covenant of God has said, come and sit at my feet, and let me instruct you as a father who loves his children, as a father who loves his children so much I sent my Son to live and die for you and redeem you from your sins that you might enjoy me, the Triune God, enjoyment of Father, enjoyment of Son, enjoyment of the Holy Spirit. Communion with the Triune God, three in one. This weekly celebration of worship is God's present rhythm of redemption in your life but he's also given us a feast hasn't he i think i've said before from this pulpit i believe we should celebrate communion weekly i think that's my my conviction on the matter god's giving us a feast whether it's weekly or not matters not in a sense when we come to the lord's table we come as it were to these festivals reminding us of the great work our lord has done god says sit at my table Christ says, come, let me serve you with myself that you might enjoy the true and living God. Friends, what better way is there to live on this day when we can be filled with the delight of being in God's presence, in God's house, with God's people singing God's praises and hearing the true and living God speak to us, people who have been brought into a saving relationship with him through the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, friends, please treasure this day. Treasure it. Set aside the things that trouble you, that creep into your life on this day. Set them aside, especially your work. And enjoy communion with our great God. And friends, when we learn that communion in worship, whether it's here, in our families, or even individually, when we're enjoying communion, we're opening up new areas, new aspects, new depths, new blessings of our relationship with God. We're not just here to glorify God, the damned will glorify God. But the saved are to glorify God and enjoy him forever. God's concern for you, for his people, is that you might enjoy him and that you might approach him in the right fashion, which is where we come to the laws on sacrifices laws on sacrifices regulations about how people were to approach God how the Israelites were to engage in their sacrificial and worship life to the end that they might glorify and enjoy him three principles we find here in the text before us Um, and we have to say this is very brief not entirely sure why why it's like it is other than the fact to present us a picture about life in covenant with God. We're going to see later on, much later on in, in, in other books, Leviticus especially, huge amounts of legislation about sacrifices. But here we're given some rather odd law and legislation on, on what it is to have communion with God and to approach him properly. First of all, in verse 18, the principle of holiness in sacrifice is elucidated holiness in sacrifice secondly in verse 19 the best of our produce the best of ourselves is to be given to god and then the third principle again in verse 19 the issue with the goat is that we are to remain distinct in our approach to god we're to remain distinct there's three principles, verse 18, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the fat of my feast remain until morning. No leaven to be found in the sacrifices of God's people, nor were they to retain the best cuts, the fat joint, uh, the, the, the best cuts of their sacrifice until a later meal holiness we've seen previously the idea of leaven uh, we've seen it portrayed for us as a, a symbol of pollution of that which was to be separated from the people of God the removal of leaven throughout scripture in fact is a picture a symbolic picture of the removal of corruption and the establishment of Holiness was designed to teach the Israelites and us that there is to be an actual removal of unholiness from their lives and from ours. The fat offering, the best cut of the sacrifice, was to be served at the sacrifice itself, either burned up whole or eaten. It was not then to be reserved and kept for the sacrificer to take home and enjoy on their own account. No, it's the best. It's to be given to the Lord. It was to be wholly devoted to God in sacrifice. The principle, if I can put it this way, whole holiness. Complete holiness. They were to worship and approach God with holiness, not reserving any part of the sacrificial process for themselves, removing from them the leaven of unholiness. A holiness of complete and utter devotion to the Lord. Secondly, verse 19, the first fruits. And it's not just the first fruits, it's the best of the first fruits. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. Pretty self explanatory. God first in everything. God first in everything. Don't be an Ananias and Sapphira. God first in everything. Give of your best unto the Lord. And finally, the third principle, you are to be distinct from the nations in your approach to God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Weird, right? But that's what the pagans did. At times we'll see this represented throughout the Mosaic law. What they're doing, you're not to do. What the world is doing, friends, You are not to do. There is something ironically cruel about boiling a young goat in its own mother's milk. Israel was to be holy. And they were to be holy, holy, completely holy, distinct from the nations round about them. And really, that's what this text is saying to us in a whole. You have been set apart by Almighty God. Now, here's how you glorify him and enjoy him. You are distinct. You are different. We are different, friends. Here's how we are to glorify and enjoy him. Friends, we are to be holy before God. And we are to be wholly distinct from the world, completely distinct from the world. That's what this passage is speaking to us about, the distinction that God has made between us and the world, and how we are to enjoy our great God and bring glory to him. And we would have to say, nowhere more clearly is that holy separation seen than in our doctrine of salvation in Jesus Christ. This is not a call to go out there and do something now. It's a call to settle something in your heart. The sabbaths, the feasts, the sacrifices all point to the savior himself. He fulfills them. That's why we don't have a feast of tabernacles. We don't need them anymore. What we don't need passover anymore. Jesus Christ has fulfilled them. Jesus Christ is our rest from our labors. Jesus Christ is our fullness and provision in the feasts. Jesus Christ is our atonement and righteousness in the sacrifices. He's done it all, finished, complete. It's all through Jesus Christ. It's not through any other means, it's not through any other philosophy. It's not through any other person. It's all through Christ. 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Or Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Resolve it in your heart, dear Christian. There is no other name. There is no other salvation. There is no other mediator. Don't look for it elsewhere. Don't look for it in your own works, especially not in your own works. There's the distinction, the method of salvation. Every other religion or philosophy will teach you to look elsewhere, especially to yourself. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Friend, if you're here tonight without Jesus Christ as your Savior, you need to hear that with urgency no one else, no other name, no other mechanism by which you may be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. And in saving us, and in saving us, a great distinction is wrought in us and on our behalf by Christ. If you stand in that salvation, If you stand in that name, Jesus, dear Christian, I trust you do, think richly upon this fact that when you were saved, you were made holy. Not perfectly holy, but in in God's sight, holy as Christ, yet there remains indwelling sin within us. There is a call that attaches itself to that new reality. And it is the call to holiness the call to separation the call to distinction the weekly rhythm of entering through those doors the daily rhythm of worship at home on your own and with your families God has given us many rhythms of salvation by which we may be motivated to serve him well by which we may be motivated to enjoy him well Yes, friends, we're called to be holy, different, distinct. I think the essence of holiness is that we are set apart from common use and devoted unto the Lord. Friends, use that daily, that weekly rhythm of worship of the Lord's Day to allow you to refocus your vision on the Lord Jesus Christ, to refocus your vision on the exclusivity of salvation in Jesus Christ, to refocus your vision upon the mercy of God that has united you with Christ, having taken you from the kingdom of darkness and brought you into the kingdom of heaven. Use that weekly rhythm to motivate your desire and practice for holiness. And then, friends, let the Lord bless you. Let's pray. Bless us, we pray, Lord God, not with riches or success or any such thing, but just with trust in you and devotion to you. Have mercy upon us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.